Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. So I'm going to ask you to please stand again so we can begin in prayer. In name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, we have celebrated the death and resurrection of your Son, and now his ascension into glory. Here are the many needs and prayers we have in our hearts. And open our minds and hearts to know the faith and to proclaim the faith to all. May all the topics we meditate upon and all the studies of our faith help us to be good and faithful apostles here and throughout the world. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father Fisher, and the entire community here at St. Ambrose for opening the doors of your parish to the Institute of Catholic Culture. My name is Deacon Sabatino Carnazzo, and I'm the founder of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Our speaker this evening is a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council and has written for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Reader's Digest, and the National Review. He is the former director of The Voice of America. He has taught at the National Defense University and served in the White House and the Office of the Secretary of Defense and is a member of the board of the Middle East Media Research Institute. Please welcome Mr. Robert Riley. Thank you. I'm deeply, deeply impressed by the Institute for Catholic Culture. I have been on the other side of this podium at such events and uh, have enjoyed and learned from the speakers I think it's got to be the best mailing list in Washington. <laughs> and someone here said, well, if the Holy Spirit's on your side, you have a very good <laughs> mailing list. And I want to thank Father Fisher for hosting us this evening. I've met some of you who are from other parishes. This is actually my home parish. I'm from St. Ambrose. I can't tell you how intimidating it is to speak in front of my pastor here. Well, you know, I did uh, Deacon Sabatino tell you this is a double header? I'm speaking to you for two consecutive Sundays, and I'm trying to figure out how to create a sufficient level of interest so that you're at the edge of your seats by this evening, and you have to come back to find out what's going to happen next Sunday. But this is kind of like watching the Titanic in two parts. You know the boat's going to sink. <laughs> But you come back anyway because there's this marvelous human drama involved. And as you may have guessed, I don't know, did Deacon Sabatino mention the title of my book? Thank you for holding it up. The Closing of the Muslim Mind. So you know it's going to close. But I can guarantee you there is, within that, one of the greatest human dramas in history. How many of you have read the Pope's great Regensburg lecture? In that, he refers to this drama when he talks about the de-Hellenization of Islam, the loss within Islam of reason, the gift of the Greeks, philosophy. 
And that, of course, even though that was a minority uh, a subject within that great lecture, it stirred a huge reaction within the Muslim world that more or less proved his point that it had been dehellenized and had lost reason. Uh, what I try to show in the closing of the Muslim mind is kind of a footnote to the Regensburg lecture. But it shows the preceding Hellenization of Islam, what took place in the ninth century as it absorbed uh, the teachings of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, and then the struggle within Islam over the status of reason, its relationship to God, and the outcome and the consequences of the outcome. Have you heard of Bernard Lewis's famous book, What Went Wrong? You have. Wonderful book. My book could be subtitled, Why It Went Wrong. How it is this once great civilization went into terminal decline to the point where today the Arab world, according to the UN Human Development Reports, written all by Arab scholars, is at the bottom of the barrel in every category of human development, but for Sub-Saharan Africa. And it even beats out Sub-Saharan Africa in one category for the worst. Education, literacy, health care, productivity, uh, GDP, uh, number of patents, all of this, gone. How did Bernard Lewis tells you how it happened. I try to tell you why it happened. Even though this is my home parish, I have to tell you my children are not here tonight. They have suffered enough. <laughs> During the long and agonizing research for this book and the writing of it, I developed a mantra which they learned. So now when I ask the four of them, if your father has taught you anything, has left you a legacy that will carry you through those setbacks in life and those difficult times, what is it? And they will recite together the following. Never, ever write a book about ninth century Muslim theology. <laughs> so I have not left them empty handed. Now my wife is here, at least she got as far as the parking lot. So Blanca, I hope you are, you made it into the room. Uh, my wife is, is Spanish, she's from Spain. And during my research for this book, I kept a copy of the Quran next to my night table. Then I noticed it started getting some very curious, indeed, what I call hard glances. And then I thought, that's right. It took more than 700 years in the Reconquista to move this book out of the Spanish realms. And here it is in the bedroom. There was a New Testament on the night table also. So I want to reassure you in that respect. Well, let me begin by saying that I'm not here to denigrate uh, Islam or to bash Muslims. I've worked with Muslims for many years in my life, both here in the United States, at the Voice of America, overseas in the Middle East, during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, I've worked closely with them as colleagues. I've lived with them. We have fought for the same things. I also had a rather, rather privileged perch from which to see the presence of God 
in the lives of some Muslims whom I got to know quite well. Uh, I refer specifically to seven Iraqi Muslims whose right hands had been cut off by Saddam Hussein and their foreheads scarified. When I was in Baghdad in the summer of 2003, we were given the films of this being done to these men in Abu Ghraib Prison Hospital. Uh, a colleague of mine found them. We were able to bring them to the United States for corrective surgery by a lovely Jewish doctor in Houston. They were donated prosthetic devices at a half a million dollars each. They were able to tie their ties and their shoes. It was quite marvelous. Anyway, they were Arab, they were Kurdish, they were Shia, they were Sunni. And I was given the prayer that one of them said, the, uh, the, it wrote to his wife the night before his hand was chopped off. I'd like to read it to you. This is my friend Nazar Judy. Quote, to every believer, there is a sacrifice and there is a price to every sacrifice. The price for this is my right hand. Freedom also has a price, and freedom is more valuable than anything. Do not be sad because of what happened to my hand. Hopefully, Allah will replace it with even a better one. I hope you understand that this is Allah's will, so bear with this. God will reward you for standing next to your husband and being my right hand. Hopefully something good will come out of this amputation for you and for me, unquote. Later he reflected that after leaving the operating room, I did not see my hand. I thanked Allah, the praiseworthy and sublime, for the good health that I had, unquote. What's that? Faith. The presidents of providence in this man's life. I spent two weeks with these seven men. And in our last meeting alone together, I said to them, I, as a Christian, salute you as Muslims for the depth of your faith in God. I couldn't have said anything to them that would have pleased them more. They beamed. You should understand what Muslims despise most is not you, not us, not believers. What they despise is unbelief. And because of the presentation the United States has made of itself internationally through its popular culture, we have come to be seen as a place of unbelief, an achievement that would have startled our founding fathers. Nonetheless, that's the source of much of this repugnance. Well, the great Jesuit from Egypt, Father Samir Khalil Samir, who is one of the Pope's principal advisors on Islam, who, who taught both the Bible and the Quran at San Joseph in Beirut, said, of course, respect, yes, respect, but also the truth. We do not neglect the truth out of respect. So I have some hard truths to go over with you this evening regarding Islam, and I find that the quickest way, how many of you, for instance, have read the Quran? Holy smokes, that's impressive. Not all of it. Well, it is a very, very difficult book, as I'm sure you know, particularly for someone from a Western orientation, because it's not a narrative, it doesn't tell a story. And as you may know, the principle of organization in the Quran, in its 114 surahs or chapters, is simply the longest to the shortest. 
that is, it's not a story. It contains stories, but it itself is not a narrative. Very, very tough book. So what I thought I would do tonight is go over some of the basics of Islam very quickly because I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with it. I think that the, the way to do this is to compare directly Quranic and Christian and Judaic revelation. Because in the short time we have together, that will bring out what the essential differences are in the terms of this revelation. So I want to show you tonight how, how Islam understands itself. And then also how it understands us as Christians. And next week, what I would like to do is move on from that into this huge drama of the Hellenization of Islam, its dehellenization, and then the consequences of that today that have left us with the extraordinary events of the past 10 years. I'll never forget Osama bin Laden's video release after 9-11 when he quoted his spiritual mentor, Abdullah Azam, as saying, terrorism is an obligation in Allah's religion. And I remember reading that and thinking, I better study Muslim theology. What kind of God could that be who would require terrorism as part of his religion? Okay, well let's get on to some of these basics. Do you know the five pillars of Islam? What does Islam mean? Submission. Okay, you know that. But what is the goal of Islam? What is the purpose of the submission? To what, sir? Well, I would say it's to get the world to submit to the one true God. Yeah, no, you have to submit to in order to achieve a goal. What is the ultimate goal of Islam? Yes, ma'am. To bring the whole planet into subjection. You're getting warmer, but no one's hit it yet. Yes. Sir. Happiness. God. No. No. All right. Yes, ma'am. To do God's will, that's pretty good, but that's contained within submission. If you submit, what do you achieve? How many of you uh, have ever heard the phrase when you greet a Muslim or they greet each other, Assalam alaikum? Alaikum salam? Salam. Salam is the goal of Islam. Peace. That is the thing at which it aims. But how do you achieve this peace? You do so by bringing everything in subjection to Allah. Correct? Mm -hmm. Now how do you do that? What are the means at your disposal to bring all things into submission to Allah so that you achieve salam? Force? Okay, you do have, you do have this you have jihad, and you also have dawah. Like Christianity, Islam has the obligation to proselytize. Every Muslim has this obligation. I remember when I was in uh, Kuwait, I was on the commercial side of the airport in the manager's office, and he immediately does two things. He offers me chai, tea, and he hands me a Quran. That's dawah. They have the obligation to persuade. Every Muslim does, just as we as Christians have an obligation to evangelize. Uh, but what if it doesn't work? Then you always have recourse to jihad, which is, jihad, as you know, means struggle in the path of God. 
overwhelmingly it means war. I mean, in the history of Islam and the employment of this term, that's what it means. Now, there is a just war teaching within Islam, which you may or may not be aware of. When can someone go on jihad? This is very detailed in Islamic jurisprudence. Yes, sir? When is a reasonable likelihood of success? Ah, very good. That's, that's right out of uh, just war teaching in the Catholic Church as well. You have to be prudent about it. You have to have a chance of success. But what's the causus belli? Let me tell you. If you offer someone Islam three times, and three times they refuse, that is the causus belli. They then are the aggressor by presenting an obstacle, an obstacle to the spread of Islam. And the caliph is then justified in declaring a jihad. However, you should know that Muslims do not use the word war. They reserve the war, word war for infidels uh, against whom they're fighting. The, the word in, in uh, Arabic that they use for jihad is futuwat, which means opening. So in their understanding of themselves, what we would see as an aggressive jihad uh, is the opening of the world to Allah. Now, Muslims also see themselves uh, in the way in which they see Allah, and that is Allah is most especially one God, the unity of God, monotheism, a kind of radical monotheism typifies Islam. Of course, it arose in a wildly polytheistic pagan society of the Arabian Peninsula. In the Kaaba, uh, at Muhammad's time, there were 360 gods arranged there. So monotheism was something new for the Arabian Peninsula, and it is a form of radical monotheism, as I will explain. But So this one god has following him one people, one, one, one. And the people of Allah are called the Ummah. There is no distinction amongst Muslims, nationality, or in any other way. All Muslims are one. They are the Ummah. Now, if you have this one God, you have this one people, what sort of political organization do you think would be natural to it? A caliphate. My handwriting's so bad, this is pointless, isn't it? No. You can that? Okay, so there's, there's one God, there's one people, and there's one caliph who is the uh, vice-regent of Allah. He is the shadow of Allah on earth. He doesn't derive any of his powers from the, his subjects or his ummah. It's all from Allah. However, the caliph is restrained in what he can do. He can't just do anything. Because the purpose of the caliphate in the Ummah is the salvation of its members. So he is constrained by what Muslims are told in their revelation. And as that manifests itself in Sharia, their law. Now, let's just quickly go over these five pillars. There's the Shahada. Do you know what the Shahada is? That's what makes you a Muslim. It's the proclamation which you say in Arabic, there is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. If you say that in front of another Muslim, you're in. It's very easy to get in. It's very hard to get out. 
My son just finished the uh, autobiography of this extraordinarily uh, brave SEAL whose entire team was killed in Afghanistan. He survived and he was picked up by a Pashtun tribe. And out of Pashtun Wali, which is their tribal uh, code of hospitality, they were protecting him against the Taliban, uh, which knew of his presence in this village. But there was another source for his safety that quite unbeknownst to him, he had become a Muslim. And that's because without knowing what it was, he recited the Shahada in Arabic. Because they were telling him what it was, they were just talking to him. He didn't speak Arabic, or did he, nor did he speak uh, Urdu or Farsi. And so he, uh, he accidentally became a Muslim, so they were even more solicitous for his care. So you have the Shahada. And once you become this Muslim, you then have obligations. One is zakat, which is charity. It's obligatory. It's a certain percentage of your income. And uh, that is to go for the general welfare of the community, support of widows, orphans, and so forth. And you are to pray, obligatory five times a day, oriented toward Mecca. When Islam began, they were oriented toward Jerusalem because Muhammad still hoped that the Jews would recognize him as a prophet. When they didn't, he switched the orientation to Mecca. So you pray five times a day, and then if you can afford it, you have to go on the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca once in your life. And that's so notable, if a Muslim does that, he has a, a surtitle to his name, Haji. So then you're known as Haji Muhammad, or it's, it's, a, it's a great distinction. Um, and then, of course, you, you are familiar with Ramadan and the period of fasting that is obligatory to, to all Muslims. And uh, then there is that sixth pillar, the unspoken pillar, which is jihad, which is obligatory both uh, either individually or collectively for all Muslims. But not any Muslim can declare a jihad. Only the caliph can do that. What about everybody else? We have this problem that as a Muslim to achieve salam, we have to bring all things to Islam. This bifurcates the world into the Dar al-Islam and the Dar al-Harb. The Dar al-Islam is the house or the abode of Islam, of submission, and everybody else is the Dar al-Harb, the, uh, the house of war. And again, the means they have at their disposal to overcome that is jihad or dawah. As you know, beginning in the mid-7th century, Islam bursts out of the Arabian Peninsula and conquers huge portions of the world. Now, what are they to make of these people? And how are they to treat them according to their own scripture and sacred law, the Sharia? Well, if you were a pagan, you were an infidel, and you had two choices. One, submit and become a Muslim, or two, death. That was it. Now, if you were a person of the book, whom the Muslims defined as either Christians or Jews, and when they conquered the Persian Empire, there were so many Persians, they couldn't kill them all, so they 
They found that the Zoroastrians had a book, and they included them. People of the book have a third choice, not just death or becoming a Muslim. They, have, they can become a dhimmi. That is, you can acknowledge your inferiority to the Muslims through the payment of what's called a jizya, a poll tax, which is made annually and in such circumstances that it is clear that you are being humiliated in the payment of it. And the purpose of this is so Muslims can see what happens to those who don't believe, and those uh, who don't believe are encouraged to become Muslims. So the dhimis, were we in a Muslim country that still ruled according to Sharia, and you chose to remain Christians or Catholics, you would pay the jizya and you would all be dhimis. Now what indeed did happen over all the years of Muslim presence conquest and occupation. As you probably know, all of the Middle East and North Africa was Christian at the beginning of the seventh century. How Christian? Well, we do know from historical records that in the sixth century, in North Africa alone, there were 700 bishops. 500 years later, in 1070, there were only two. How do we know that? We know because those two remaining bishops uh, petitioned Pope Gregory and said, please send us a third bishop so we can have apostolic succession down here. That gives you just in a little capsule form an idea of the magnitude of the transformation that took place once Islam had conquered these formerly Christian places. Now there are a lot of um, Islamic doctrines that it might be interesting for you to know that are internal to it. If you, uh, if you become an unbeliever, if you uh, engage in heresy within Islam, which is called Bida innovation. Bida is heresy. I was quite amazed when President uh, Obama spoke in Cairo uh, and he said, Al Azhar, I just applaud. This is the center of innovation. I thought, I wonder how they translated that one. <laughs> so basically, if they did it literally, they'd say, Oh, you're wonderful. You're the center of heresy here. And they, the Lord, Bida, innovation, bad. When you have God's direct word and everything is codified by Him, you don't innovate. And if you do, you may become a kufr, which is an unbelievable unbeliever. And if you, if you become a kufr, uh, guess what happens to you? Death. In all four Sunni legal schools, death is mandatory for an apostate. Do you remember that great movie um, with uh, Sean Connery, The Man Who Would Be King? Remember where they were going? Kafiristan. That was the part of Afghanistan that was the last to convert or be forced to convert to Islam. So it was known as Kafiristan, the, the, the place of the unbelievers, the Kufirs. When in the late 19th century they forced it to convert, it was, not, it was changed to Nuristan, land of light, once they're all Muslims. Um, by the way, now, 
we find that rather hard to believe that you would be executed if you changed your faith. Why is that? Because we have something called freedom of conscience, right? Well, there was no word in Arabic for conscience. So you might understand you can't have freedom of something that you don't even have a word for. And I'll show you why that is so as we now move into the actual content of Muslim revelation. Now, for those of you who have read the Quran, you, I'm sure, were startled by this when you encountered it. It certainly got my attention. And that first thing is, in their creation account, as contrasted with Genesis, man is not made in the image and likeness of God. And to suggest that he is in Islam is a grave sin. In Genesis, it's very clear that God creates man in his image and likeness. And this suffuses all of our scripture and indeed our culture to the point that my reminding you of this may be a bit of a yawn. But let's recall for just a moment this lovely statement from the Book of Wisdom. Quote, For God formed me to be imperishable, the image of his own nature he made me. The image of his own nature he made me. And then, of course, in, in the New Testament, St. John makes the extraordinary statement, Now we are children of God. We have a familial relationship with God. As you know from the Our Father, Christ spoke Aramaic, Abba. Abba more literally translates as Daddy. So you'd say, Our Daddy who art in heaven. Can you imagine the level of intimacy that our Lord suggests that we regard our Father with to call him in this way? And St. John says elsewhere, quote, what we shall be later is not yet clear. But when we see him, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. We shall be like him? Like whom? Like God? And then, of course, in Mass today, at the offertory, we all heard in our respective parishes, the priests say, by the mingling of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity, to share in his divinity. I cannot possibly express to you how shocking those statements are to a Muslim. To think that man, this creature, could somehow share in the divine life of God is an outrageous blasphemy to them. And to suggest that God himself took on a human nature is absurd beyond belief, literally. And as imams will say, if the subject comes up, God, um, God, had, God had bodily functions, God consumed and excreted. So this is just absurd, beyond the pale. Uh, 
So it's very important for you to know how foreign, totally foreign, these notions are within Islam. And part of this has to do with one of their doctrines of monotheism, which is called Tanzir. Tanzir. This means that this God is infinitely removed. He is infinitely transcendent. He is incomparable. He is unknowable. He is unreachable. There is nothing you can know about him but what he chooses to tell you. And in his revelation, insofar as the Quran is concerned, does he tell you who he is and what he's like? No, he doesn't. He tells you what to do. He gives you his rules. So Tanzir, this God is, is above. Don't compare him with anything. Certainly not with yourselves. Blasphemy. The famous saying within Islam is, is without asking how, bilya kefa, and without comparing. God's incomparable. Yes? Do they have any personal relationship with this God? And the answer is... Um, that's next. <laughs> Do you see how I build suspense here? I'm going to hold that off till next week, so you come back. Now, the next thing, the next thing that would surprise you in the Quran is that there is no original sin. There is the first sin, but it's not any different from the second sin or the third sin or the fourth sin? What happens after this first sin in the Quran? And he, Allah, accepted his repentance. And we move on. Sometimes Allah accepts the repentance, sometimes he doesn't, but that's about it. In other words, there was no catastrophic dislocation in the relationship between man and God. No catastrophic breach, which actually sunders all of creation. As St. Paul says, all creation groans as a result of this original sin, which brought death and suffering, etc., into the world. And so what does Genesis tell us after original sin and the breach of this relationship between the creator and his creation? We see man destitute, having nothing within his limited means to repair the relationship. How can this finite man have anything of sufficient worth to expiate his sin with this infinite God? He can't. He doesn't. So what happens next in Genesis? God says, you can't do this, but I will send someone who will do it for you. I will send a savior, a messiah. And the rest of the Old Testament contains prophecies about who this person will be, uh, what he will be like, and what he will do. In other words, that moment in Genesis begins what we call salvation history. And we in the West basically took the idea of salvation history and secularized it 
into history. History is a notion of a linear development of progress. That's just a secularized idea, notion of salvation history. Now in Islam, since there was no original sin, there is no promise of a Messiah, of a Savior, as a consequence of which there's no salvation history. And since there's no salvation history within Islam, there is, in a way, no history either. There was no salvation history to secularize into the notion of history as we understand it in the West. Indeed, I would suggest to you the very idea of time is different within Islam. No clocks on mosques. Some, one scholar once said, Islam's end is in its beginning. It just keeps looping back on itself. Allah said in the Quran of the community that Muhammad had formed in Medina, this is the best community. This is the best. That is why you will notice every effort at Muslim reform is always to go back. Because you have a divine definition of the best that existed at that time, uh, you should attempt to replicate this in some way. Now, there's another interesting uh, point in the Quran. Who names the animals in the Quran? Do you know? God. God names the animals. And as we know in Genesis, it's man who names the animals. This may seem like a... Um, interesting but not particularly pertinent point, but it is, believe me, extremely powerful. Man in Genesis has the, the power to name. The power to name is the power to know. Reality, reality becomes intelligible to us through words. If I say, uh, what's that? And you don't have a, a name for it, what, how do you respond? Say, I don't know. I don't know. If you don't have a name for it, you don't know what it is. So Adam has this power over these things to name them, which means to make them intelligible to himself. Muslim man does not have this power. What does this mean? It means he doesn't have a source of knowledge within himself through this power to, to name these things. It's even goes further than that. The angels complain to Allah about making this creature man and telling them to bow down to him. So Allah decides to put the angels in, his, in their place. And this is in the second surah. And he taught Adam the names, all of them. Then he showed them to the angels and said, Inform me of the names of these if you are truthful. So he challenges the angels. Okay, you're so smart. What are these things? They said, Exalted are you. We have no knowledge except what you have taught us. The angels don't know what these animals are either because neither do they have the power to name or know other than what God explicitly tells them. 
Are you with me on this one? They don't have a reason capable of apprehending reality independent of a direct revelation from God. So you see in the revelation here something that next Sunday, here another buildup of this tension here, you see in this scripture a presage of the problem with the Muslim mind being unable to apprehend reality and why reality is not accessible to them outside of their revelation. Let's get on to the Quran here and talk about how it understands itself. What does the Quran say about itself? The account in the Quran goes something like this in the fifth surah, the fifth chapter. Allah said, first I gave my law, my revelation to the Jews. I had a covenant with the Jews, and I gave them the Holy Land. But what did the Jews do? They changed my word. They changed Allah's word. As we go on, I will help you understand the magnitude of that offense. They changed his word. As a consequence of which, they annulled their covenant with God, and therefore, as it is generally understood, lost their right to the Holy Land. You know, I used to, uh, just as a little side remark here, I used to avidly follow the peace process for some years, until I came to an understanding of the fifth surah. And that is, at this level of revelation, to find the Jews back, ruling the Holy Land, exercising sovereignty in the Holy Land, indeed, ruling over certain Muslims, is at that level of revelation absolutely unacceptable. Because they have been cursed for changing God's word and have lost their right to that land. There's also another message about the Jews uh, a little later in which it says, the Jews say, my hand is tied that God's hand is tied. Cursed be they, let their hands be tied. What did he mean by the Jews say, my hands are tied? That is because the Jews say, God, there are certain things he won't do that he can't do because of who he is. And the reaction within this is, oh no, he can do anything. Believe me, he's not tied even by his own word because he is not the word. Quickly to move on, it says in the Quran, okay, I did it again. I told the Christians. I gave them my revelation. And what did they do? They came up with this cockamamie idea that I had a son. And Jesus appears, or Isa as he is called, appears repeatedly throughout the Quran, always saying, I never said that. I would never say I'm your son. I didn't say that. So, Allah says, I'm going to do it one last time to Muhammad. Therefore, he is the seal of the prophets. He is the final revelation, which is, by the way, the original revelation, uncorrupted by Jews and Christians. Therefore, Muslims think Islam has superseded all prior religions. Sometimes I've been asked, why is it so hard to convert a Muslim. 
and help you to understand that, you might say, if you're a Christian, you know, why don't you become a Jew? And you'd say, well, but because Christ fulfilled the Old Testament, I'd be, well, that's just the way the Muslims feel. You're asking them to go back to a religion that has been superseded by their own, and they have it in uncorrupted form, right? And now, thanks to this lady back in the hall, I'm going to tell you why it's such an offense to change God's word. Because in their notion of revelation, God dictates his word through the angel Gabriel to Mohammed, and there is no human agency involved in this. There's no gospel according to St. Luke or St. Matthew. You don't look for stylistic inconsistencies in the Quran. It is literally the word of God. God speaks Arabic. And this Quran, as the lady said, has existed co-eternally with him on a tablet in heaven on the Umm al-Kitab, the mother of the book. Therefore, the Quran is ahistorical. It's always existed. It's in eternity. Therefore, it's not contingent on any historical event. It's not God speaking in history. It's not created. You can imagine with this conception of revelation that the, the, the room for interpretation collapses in. But it also helps you understand why it's such an offense to change that word, to change God's word. Now, uh, I had the pleasure of meeting a, a great German theologian, Dr. Gerl Falkowitz, at a conference in Germany summer before last. Apparently, the Pope thinks very highly of her. She gave a brilliant contrast between Luke and the encounter of Mary with Gabriel and Muhammad and his encounter with Gabriel. What happens in the Quran? Muhammad, in this experience, feels this crushing, overwhelming power that he thinks is going to capsize his chest, that commands him. So terrified is he by this experience that he thinks it's demonic. And it happens three times. He's only later convinced, no, that was an angel and it was Gabriel visiting you. And in the last overwhelming encounter, he's told, recite. The Quran means the recitation. And so he's be he begins to recite. Now, this is Muhammad, this overwhelming presence crushing in on him in a sort of semi-conscious state, in a trance, receiving these messages, which he then repeats to others. He has very little choice in this. Just you either recite or you're crushed. Now what happens in Luke, in the first chapter, when Gabriel appears to Mary and makes this extraordinary announcement? What does she do? Well, how can this be? She asks a question. She needs to consider this. She brings it under consideration, and only when she's had an answer that satisfies her, does she say, let it be done according to your word. Mary is not in a trance. Mary's rational faculties have not been suspended. She is not being crushed by an overwhelming presence that she thinks is going to kill her. 
She is fully involved in that fiat voluntatis. She is fully engaged as a rational human being with faith, as opposed to this more oriental conception of this mystical God who is only encountered in this semi-conscious trance-like state. I found that uh, extremely insightful. She also used a brilliant uh, contrast. She said, in Christianity, we have the incarnation. In Islam, they have the in-libration, a word she made up, for, you know, the book, the in-libros, the in-libration. In other words, the Quran plays a comparable role within Islam as does Christ within Christianity. An in-libration, it is the divine thing in their life because they believe that this, this Quran here is, is not some kind of photocopy, it's the actual thing. That can help you understand why when this <coughs> lunatic pastor in Florida decides to incinerate some Qurans, that uh, how would you feel if someone uh, took the Eucharist and did that? There you go. That's how Muslims feel. I'm not, I'm not trying to excuse this. I'm just trying to explain it so you understand how they see that. So in liberation as opposed to incarnation. There's one last thing I would like to point out to you. Also, by the way, you should know, because Christ and Mary are, are all over the, uh, uh, the Quran, um, the incarnation, no. In Islam, no. Virgin birth? No problem. Um, the ascension? No problem. The crucifixion? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God does not treat his prophets that way, and Christ was one of his greatest prophets, second only to Muhammad. And in fact, in apocryphal literature in Islam, Christ is supposed to come back at the end of time to break the cross and bringing all things in submission to Allah. So Christ is breaking the cross. I once started writing an imaginary dialogue between a Muslim who goes to heaven and Christ. And the Muslim sees our Lord on the right hand of the Father and said, well, I didn't expect to see you here. You were supposed to come back and, and break the cross. And Christ responds, no, no, I was broken on the cross, which is how you got here. <laughs> Now, everything in, most things in the Quran, I should tell you, are very much like the Old Testament. I mean, where, after all, did Muhammad get his material? Where do you think this came from? He got it from, from uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he got it from Gnostic Gospels. Uh, so it's, it's, it's no surprise. Uh, but, of course, if, when you read the Quran, you'll see he doesn't get it right. He doesn't get lineages right. He doesn't get events right. He repeats some stories. And then most egregious of all, do you know how the Trinity is defined in uh, the Quran? And why Muslims find it so offensive as a form of polytheism? Anybody know? Uh, Earth and Mary. Bingo. Father, Son, and Mary. Well, I'd be repelled by that too. But... Uh, because that's in the Quran, Muslims are more or less compelled to think that's what we think the Trinity is instead of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Where did he get that? I've never met a Christian who thought the Trinity was Father, Son, and Mary. 
Well, there was, in fact, a heretical sect in northern uh, Arabian Peninsula called the Coloridians, who, who did believe that. And that most probably is where uh, Muhammad got that part of his material. And then, of course, he also knew the Gnostic Gospels. If you see some of the uh, miracles related to Christ in there, they are very clearly uh, from the Gnostic Gospels as well. But no cross. No cross, ladies and gentlemen. I sometimes think St. Peter uh, was a Muslim. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because he was the thou shalt not to God, to Christ. Muslims basically say to God, thou shalt not. You sh thou shalt not be crucified. Thou shalt. They have a certain idea of who God is, as omnipotent and as pure will, who couldn't be that if he did these things. And what do we see from St. Peter when Christ tries to wash his feet? Thou shalt not. After which our Lord says, then you'll have nothing to do with me. And earlier than that, when Christ said that he now has to go to Jerusalem, suffer greatly, be crucified and raised from the dead, what does St. Peter say? Uh-uh. Thou shalt not. And what does our Lord say? Get behind me, Satan. And I would suggest to you that Islam is the great thou shalt not. I'm serious. As much as they think they are preserving God's omnipotence in its pristine fashion, they deny uh, and basically circ circumscribe what he can do and tell him that thou shalt not. There's another interesting... Um, contrast between the Old and New Testament, I mean, sorry, between the Quran and indeed the New Testament. In the Quran, almost everything takes a place as the direct result of an act of God. In other words, it's the first cause acting in history. The first cause does all of these things. There don't seem to be any intermediary causes. Well, that's the way the Old Testament tells much of its story too, doesn't it? It's God directly acting in history the walls of Jericho coming down. Uh, it's, it's seen in the way of God acting directly. Uh, and of course, when in the New Testament, this is the way the apostles think. They have that Old Testament mindset. And when they come upon the man born blind, they say to our Lord, now, was that because of his sins or because of his parents' sins? And what does Christ say? He said, no, it's, it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins. Neither. In another episode, when the Tower of Siloam crashes down and kills, what, I think those 18 people, they again ask him, was, it, was that because of their sins or the sins of their parents? And he, again, our Lord says, no, it's neither. You know, it's faulty construction. <laughs> he didn't say that, but you understand that this perspective on reality opens the door to secondary causes in the natural world. That you're actually not sick because you've disobeyed God or your parents disobeyed God. It's because you have an infection. And if you have an antibiotic, you can take care of the infection. It doesn't mean you become a saint. It just means you have a good antibiotic. So I, I point this out because this too is going to be a major feature of this huge drama I'm going to take you through uh, next week about causality in Islam. As um, this Lebanese, famous Lebanese um, American scholar, 
said to me um, several years ago, you may have heard him, he teaches at, uh, at Johns Hopkins, um, Fuad Ajami. He said, everywhere I go in the Islamic world, it's the same problem, cause and effect, cause and effect, by which he meant the denial of cause and effect in the natural world. Why? Because we have God as the first and only cause, and for him to be omnipotent, there can be no other cause before him. Uh, and this leads to the denial of cause and effect. And I will dramatize that for you next week in ways I hope you'll remember. One last thing about Islam for you to understand before we go to questions and before um, Sabatino raves to, uh, raises another card in the back of the room. <laughs> when Thomas Aquinas was approached by his fellow Dominicans, they asked him, well, how are we supposed to deal with these Muslims? And St. Thomas said, well, you can't deal with them from our revelation because they don't accept it. And you can't deal with them from their revelation because we don't accept it. Therefore, you have to treat them as natural men. What did he mean by that? You need to treat them through their reason. This takes us back to the uh, Regensburg lecture. As the Pope said there, it's only when reason is accorded a certain stature as capable of coming to know the truth that it can be the source of dialogue between two different faiths that don't accept each other's revelation. So treat them as natural men. The problem here is that in the Muslim mind, men are by nature Muslim. In other words, Father Fisher, I hate to tell you this, but you were born a Muslim and you were apostatized by your parents. I once said this to a cardinal. I can't tell you the look he gave me. Therefore, someone does not so much convert to Islam as they revert to Islam, since Islam is known as, by Muslims, you are spared by penance, the Deen al-Fitra. The Deen al-Fitra is the, the religion natural to men. So, you know, you, you've heard in Western philosophy all of these speculations about man and the state of nature. Well, in the Muslim world, uh, we're all Muslims. Adam was a Muslim. Uh, Abraham was a Muslim. Moses was a Muslim. Jesus was a Muslim. And, of course, Muhammad was a Muslim. So what they are bringing us all back to our natural state by uh, attempting to uh, bring us into subjection to Allah. So I hope this evening I've given you at least a little introduction of how uh, Muslims see themselves and how they regard us. And then what I propose to do next week is to show how close it came, what a close call it was, that Islam was almost Hellenized, that Islam almost established the integrity of reason in such a way that the dialogue that Benedict XVI suggests uh, could have taken place and why it is so, so very hard uh, for that to happen today. Let me stop there and uh, take your questions. Thank you very good. much. Thank you very much, Mr. Roth.
And we're going to take our usual break. Thank you very much. Mr. Riley, one of my favorite movies is The Young Lions, in which Marlon Brando plays a Nazi officer who genuinely believes in the early frames of the movie that he's fighting for peace. How does the salam that you describe in your lecture differ from the peace sought by Nazism or Stalinism or any other totalitarian system that we've experienced in the 20th century? Well, I think you could uh, go back and simply examine what happened in the areas of the world over which that rule was extended. And I think I mentioned to you what happened to Christianity in the Middle East and North Africa. So uh, I, I'm not to call to call you know something in the ninth century totalitarian could be slightly misleading. It, it certainly was intolerant. As demies, you were not allowed to ride a horse because that was a noble animal. You had to ride a donkey, which was unclean. You couldn't have a leather saddle. You had to have a wooden saddle. I won't go into all of that. Unfortunately, what has happened today, which may be closer to an answer to your question, is that you've had a conflation of Islam with Western totalitarian ideology. Again, to build some suspense for next week, I, I've also had the opportunity of teaching Muslims, Muslim officers in the National Defense University, and one of them said to me, he was a very pious Muslim, he said, you know, what Osama bin Laden says is 90% right. Any Muslim would say, yes, indeed, that, that is Islam, that's our religion. It's the other 10%. And I'd say, well, Colonel, where does the other 10% come from? That's what we need to look at. And if you, re you read the Islamist authors, like Maududi and Qutb, it comes from Western totalitarianism. It comes from Lenin and Marx. It comes from the Nazis, whom they openly imitate and admire. So the question then arises, with everything that's on offer from the West, why of all things would they choose to imitate this horror? And that's what drives you further back into the nature of Islam. By the way, Father over there asked me to, if I gave the impression when I was talking about Islamic revelation, I meant by that what Muslims believe to have been revealed. I certainly don't believe Muslim Islam was a revealed religion. I hope that, that is very clear. Also, I should make clear that there is a brochure for the book out on the table outside, in case any of you. Mr. Riley, do Muslims believe in the soul, and what role does the soul play in their life? Excellent question. Do Muslims believe in the soul? Indeed, they believe in the immortality of the soul, and they believe in uh, the resurrection of the body. The part of the imago dei that is missing in the Muslim is the reason and free will, and that's the problem. Did history exist at the height of the caliphate, or put another way, did the meaning of history progressing end with the end of the caliphate? Does that make sense? Well, asking was there history during the caliphate. What, what there was, was uh, there were accounts of what great men did, which is what you hear in you know, ancient Greek history and every other kind of uh, what we might call history in the ancient world which really had a circular notion of all things happening and then repeating themselves. There was no linear time, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so the Muslims certainly wrote the accounts of the great deeds of their great men, but no, they did not have this notion of, of progress, except insofar as the 
extent of the caliphate was increased. How does Salam as the objective relate to the idea of getting to heaven or an afterlife? How does the notion of Salam relate to the afterlife? It, it would relate to the afterlife in that achieving it here would be a prerequisite for having it there. However, you must know that that's, that's, what, people, that's what Muslims hope will happen, but Allah is none, under no obligation to reward the good or punish the wicked. He may do exactly the opposite because he is not bound by anything, even his own word. Could you tell us if you've engaged in any dawah towards the uh, Muslims that you've uh, become intimate with? Not in the Middle East, I confess to you. In Iraq, I, <laughs> I'm happy to be here today, and it may be as a coward, but uh, I mean, the, the Muslims with whom I work, very, they know I'm a Christian. I actually have had uh, some Muslims read my book, and one of the foremost Muslim reformers in Europe was willing to write a book uh, squib endorsement of it. But my book, by the way, is dedicated to the courageous men and women in the Islamic world who are struggling for a reopening of the Muslim mind, who are trying to return to hoping that Islam can somehow be re-Hellenized. But uh, the answer is no, I haven't engaged in any apostolic work in the Muslim world. I know some people who have, whom I admire, and uh, from whom I'm learning. I just would like to ask you about the population of Muslims compared with the worldwide, uh, compared with Christians, Catholic, Catholic. The, the demography of the Islamic world compared to the Christian world, well, it's abysmal. As uh, Kara Dawi, the uh, spiritual leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, who was greeted in Tahrir Square by two million people recently. Not a good sign, folks, about the Arab Spring. As he has espoused uh, jihad by the womb, that this time they don't need to take Europe by the sword, they just outpopulate the uh, remaining population. Uh, so the demography doesn't look good in that respect, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned, maybe my wife's not suffering tonight. She is here. Oh, I'm sorry, sweetie. There you go. My wife comes from a family of nine in Spain. And on many sides, uh, you find comparable uh, numbers of children. And just within a generation, that has changed to the point where uh, her uh, confrere, she's a good deal younger than I am, will say to her, what are you doing in the United States? You have four children. Well, what else do you do? You know, don't you? And none of them have you know, more than one. Or two. So that's the demography has collapsed. That's an old story, a sad one. Mr. Riley. Yes, Father. A few years ago, after 9-1-1, one of my parishioners who was uh, an Iraqi convert to uh, uh, Catholicism when he came to this country, I asked him, and he wrote the commentary for the Quran that is still used in the Middle East. Um, so he's an expert Quranic scholar, and I asked him whether we saw the true face of Islam on 9-1-1. And he said the only thing that got hijacked on 9-1-1 was airplanes, that you saw the true face of Islam. And then you, I listened to political leaders in this country, whether it's either President Bush or President Obama, and they, they call Islam a religion of peace. It may be in their own minds a religion of peace, world domination, peace through victory, as this gentleman was talking about the Nazis, 
but it's not peace in any intelligible way that a Christian could understand. They impose Sharia law if they have a duty to do it. We will face a demographic challenge of being dimmies in just a few short years. It could happen sooner than you think. What should be the political response? Should Islam be challenged or should Islam be mollified and coddled? Yes. That's a very, very uh, profound and difficult question, Father. My answer is Islam is a religion of peace except when it's not. <laughs> and that it's a religion of peace insofar as it brings the rest of the world into subjection to it, as I tried to demonstrate here. And you are, you are quite right that um, the, the problem with the, what the, who are called the jihadis today is that it is very difficult within Islam to delegitimize them because they are appealing to a real part of their religion. So it's, that is extremely tough. Now, what should we do? Well, one thing we ought not to do is, is try to make enemies of 1.3 billion people. And as having worked with many Muslims, they're not. Many of them are not our enemies. But I do not believe that we should avoid the central issues and speak directly to them and not promulgate this false image of what it is and say, listen, we respect you as a believer insofar as this provides your peaceful path to God. But insofar as you insist on using force to impose that on others, we do not respect it and we will not allow it because we have within our image the imago dei, the sacred right of conscience. And if you or your religion violate it, we will not tolerate it. And we shouldn't apologize for saying that. Thank you very much, Mr. Riley. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.